144, Psalm 144, another great psalm. This one is I entitled, it's entitled Rejoicing in God's Loving Care. Rejoicing in God's Loving Care. Now this is a psalm that has praise in it. It expresses praise with You can see some hints of grief. So it's praise mixed with grief. And a lot of times that's what life is all about. There's praise and there's grief. And there's prayer in it. And the psalm is, and it's credited to David. This psalm is like Psalm 18. Because it describes the salvation actions of the Lord in terms of great heavenly miracles. And it's also that this psalm was used in training the army as it was in Psalm 149. Warfare in ancient Israel was closely connected to the worship of God. All right? Worship was connected closely, or warfare was connected closely to the worship of God. Deliverance, from the enemy wasn't just a job for the tough soldiers. It was also a matter of living a godly life. Because you need you see, we are in a spiritual battle in this world. You see, this is the enemy's territory. We're in enemy territory. And a lot of Christians act like it's a playground. They don't take it serious. And the enemy sets traps and he sets minefields. He sets ways and means to injure the soldier. And when we go out of our house every day, we need to understand we're going into the battlefield. We're going out there and if we're not prepared, we're going to get hurt. Seriously. And how do we prepare? Reading the word, praying, and being aware that the enemy is out there and he he wants to, to, to injure us. So again, deliverance wasn't just a job for the tough soldier. There's also a godly life that's involved. And the arrangement of the psalm goes like this. First of all, in verses one through two, we have a confession of praise. To God the great warrior. In verses 3 and 4 we have a description of the frailty of man in general. And then third in verses 5 through 8 we have a description of the saving actions of God. And in fourth in verses 9 and 10 we have a call. We have a determination to praise the Lord. Fifth in verses 11 through 15 we have a call for God's continual deliverance of his people. Now, the theme of this psalm is rejoicing in God's loving care, whether it's in times of prosperity or adversity. And remember, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that that the good days and bad days, they're both appointed by God. And blessed or happy are those whose God is the Lord. The author of this psalm is David, King David of Israel. Let's begin now with verse 1. And David said, Blessed be the Lord my rock, 
Notice, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Now, what, does, what exactly does David mean here when he says, the Lord my rock trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle? See, some people will read this and take this to say, look, the God of the Old Testament, man, he's a warmonger. He's a warmonger. There's always fighting and always battling and, and, and there was killing going on. Well, let me read you some other passages about the Lord God Almighty, Jehovah. Exodus 15, verse 3 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Isaiah 59, 17 says this, For he, speaking of God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. This is the fullest description of the Lord God as a warrior. Paul said we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Satan's our enemy. We're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Just like a soldier is trained what to look for in the enemy. The types of traps that he sets. The type of booby traps that he sets. How sad it would be to be ignorant of the way my enemy is going to come after me and then just try to go out to battle. A warrior that's very knowledgeable. That's what, we, that's what we need to be. A warrior that's very knowledgeable, that's skillful and competent in all the skills of war and abundantly qualified to be a warrior. Having total wisdom, strength and courage and thoroughly equipped for battle. Wearing the breastplate of righteousness. The helmet of salvation. The garment of vengeance and cloak of zeal. A vesture, as the Bible said, of Christ dipped in blood. And with a sword fastened on his thigh and with a bow and arrows and going forth conquering and to conquer. He's a victorious one who has conquered sin, Satan and the world and he will subdue all others and he will make his people more than conquerors, the Bible says, through him. He's not a common man of war or warrior. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the captain of the Lord's armies. He's the leader and commander of the people. He's the commander in chief of the Lord's armies in heaven and earth. He's a prince and he's a king. He's the head of them all. And David says here, the Lord is his name. I'm sorry, in Exodus 15, 3, it says the Lord is his name. Or Jehovah, meaning God Almighty, Jehovah God, which proves that he's more than a man and because he is, it's no wonder that he is so mighty and powerful and victorious. If you lived in David's day, you would have been a lot more comfortable knowing that you were protected from the enemy surrounding you and knowing that you could defend yourself. And I believe it's totally wrong to say that the Lord Jesus Christ was a conscientious objector. That Jesus was a pacifist. Now I'm not demeaning him in any way. Jesus gives peace to the human heart and peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. But listen to what Jesus said. 
In Luke 11.21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in place. Jesus said when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in place. Which is what David was saying in this psalm. Yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But Jesus has made it very clear that there will be no peace on this earth until he returns. And that's quite obvious. We've been watching what's gone on in this last year. Still going on. So until Jesus Christ returns, it's more comfortable knowing that our nation has enough weapons to protect itself. And I hope and pray that our new president... If, he, if Biden is confirmed that he, he's not some milquetoast who will cut our military budget, reducing our capability to protect our troops and country, thinking that we can depend on negotiations and peace talks to take care of us. Has it worked in the past? No, it will never work. That's the kind of thinking that has brought many nations down because they couldn't protect themselves. David was raised to be a shepherd. And it seems like his parents, as well as himself, didn't plan on him to be anything more than just a shepherd. But see, God knows you and he knows your capability. You know, there are things that before they're Christians, oh, I could never do that. I could never, you know, I I just, I don't have that talent. I don't have that skill. I don't have that, that potential. But God knows your potential even, even before you do. But God made David a soldier, though he thought all he would ever be was, a, was a, a shepherd taking care of sheep. But God made David a soldier. He made David a great warrior. David's hands, David's hands were, were, were used, was used to, uh, used to holding a staff and leading sheep. And his fingers for playing the harp. But you see, God taught David's hands to war and his fingers to fight. Because David, because God intended for David to be Israel's defender. And you see, what God calls men to do, God will find the man who either has the capability or he will make them fit for the job. So let the men of war Give God the glory for all of their military skills. The same God that teaches the lowest farmer his skills teaches the greatest general his skill. And thank God for our military and thank God for our warriors and pray for them and support them. Verse 2. David said, My loving kindness and my fortress, speaking of God, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. David says that God is his goodness. And if you and I have any goodness, it's in Jesus Christ. He's the only thing good about me, Jesus. Because I know me. There's nothing good about me. It's Christ in me. He's the good. David says that God is also his goodness. And God was his protector and God was his fortress and his high tower, his shield and his deliverer. 
And even though it feels good knowing that our nation has weapons to protect us, I also want to make sure that God is my protector and my fortress and my high tower and my deliverer and my shield. David said here, verse two, who subdues my people under me. David is speaking as a commander here. Verse three and four. David says, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. So, you know, I'm sorry, verse three. Let me go back first. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. David is is in a sense saying, why should God pay any attention to man at all? When you think about it, man doesn't amount to very much. And David said, man is like a breath. That means that, that, that man is nothing without God. That life is purposeless without God. And life without God is pretty empty. Man is like a breath. Without God, life has no purpose. We're just existing. Man is like a breath. That's just taking, talking about the, the brevity of life. Man, it is short. James says it's but a vapor of smoke. It's here one minute and it's gone the next. And David reminds us that it's like a breath, that our days are like a passing shadow. And as I said, James says that our life is but a vapor. It appears for a little while and then it disappears. And because life is short, we should live for God while we have time. The psalmist said in Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us, God, teach us to number our days. Notice, God teaches to number our days. Our days are numbered. Don't waste, let's not waste our life by, by choosing a mediocre purpose that has no lasting value. Live for God. Only God can make our life worthwhile, purposeful, and meaningful. The psalmist said in Psalm 8, verse 3, and five, three through 5, He said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You know, the psalmist says, when I look at the heavens, when I look at the stars and I look at the moon and the sun and and all of those things that you created, Lord, in comparison to man, what are we that you would even think about us? That you would visit us. And how did God visit us? When Jesus Christ stepped out of glory and he came to earth as a man and walked among us. God visited us in Jesus Christ. When we look at God's vast creation, you have to wonder why would God be concerned for people who constantly mess up and disappoint him? And yet God, the Bible says, created us only a little lower than himself or the angels. So whenever you question your worth as a person, remember God considers you to be very valuable. You have great worth to God. Why? Because you have been made by the creator and he put his label on us. And you see that in the cross. You want to see how much you're worth, as I, as I always say, look at the cross. Because Jesus Christ died for our sins. He paid the price to purchase us with his own blood. 
And because God has already said how valuable we are to Him, we shouldn't have any feelings of worthlessness. Now listen to David plead with God. In verses 5 through 8. David says, Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of foreigners. He says, whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. In these verses, 5 through 8, David is asking God to come down from heaven and to defeat his enemies. God, come down and take care of my enemies. To step in and intervene in human life. These verses give us pictures of the Old Testament. Like the time that God came down on Mount Sinai to give Moses the law. And God coming down, it was accompanied with a shaking of the earth and dark clouds and flashes of lightning representing his power and his awesomeness. And in the same way in Hebrews 12, 18 through 21, it describes Sinai as a mountain burned with fire and blackness and darkest and tempest. The people said, no, Moses, you go up there. We'll stay down here. Moses was scared to death. The Bible says Moses was so, so, so afraid that, that, that he trembled with fear at the awesomeness of God. And so many times they people mock God. There's no fear of God today. There's no reverence for God today. David refers to this event by asking God to touch the mountain so that they will smoke. He wants God to be as present in his day as he was with Moses when he revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. And then when David in verse 7 speaks of the great waters, to deliver him from the great waters, he could be speaking about the parting of the Jordan at the time that they were crossing over to Canaan. And in these verses, David is thinking about the display of God's presence and power in the past. Like on Mount Sinai. And he's asking for God to use some of that power, that same power to deliver him from the danger that he's now in. It also means this. By referring to these past proofs of God's presence, David is saying that the God of Moses, the God of Joshua... And the, and, and the judges is his God too. The God then is the same today and he'll be the same tomorrow and he'll be the same forever. As it says in Hebrews 13, he is the same yesterday, today and forever. And thank God he never changes. Thank God that when I go to God, I know he's not, he's not gonna change his mind about anything and, and, and you know, he's, he's not moody and you know. That God is not like man. God will never change. Man is always changing. God has been and always will be the same forever. The world is always changing. But we can trust our Lord who never changes. David says he's our rock and he's our deliverer. Verse 9. David goes on to say, I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. So how should we 
respond knowing that our God is everything that David just said he was in verses 1 and 2. Our rock, our deliverer, our fortress, all of those things. Our God, our, our deliverer, our rock. He's especially our deliverer of sin's penalty and power. How should we respond to all of those wonderful things that God is to us? How about singing a new song, David said? Praising him. A new song, it doesn't mean something new that we've never heard before. It's taking the songs that we do sing to them to him and give them a fresh new quality. Not just saying, oh, I'm singing the same old, just, you know, singing again and, you know, no, no emotion, no feeling. Because those words are precious. The words are precious. But we need to sing them with a fresh new quality. As if we're singing it to him for the first time. That's how we can respond for uh, being our rock, our deliverer, our shield. All of those wonderful things. David praises God for experiencing his goodness and the encouragements that he had. And to expect even more mercies from God. In the middle of all of David's complaints concerning the power and the the unfaithfulness of his enemies, here he expresses a holy excitement in his God. He says, I will sing a new song to you, God. A song of praise for your new mercies, for those new compassions that are new every morning. Fresh mercies call for fresh, a fresh giving of thanks. And we need to praise him and we need to thank him for the mercies that we hope for through his promises as well as those that we've already received by his good hand upon our life. And I love Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20 uh, through 21 and on down. I said earlier that, that, that worship and warfare are connected. This is a great example of that. Let me read it to you. It says, early the next morning, the army of Judah went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. On the way, Jehoshaphat stopped and said, listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. He said, believe in the Lord your God and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. After consulting the leaders of the people, the king appointed, notice, the king appointed singers to, notice, to walk ahead of the army. Now the army usually had a point man. But notice what the king did here. They appointed singers to walk ahead of the army singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. And this is what they sang. The passage says, they sang, give thanks to the Lord, his faithful love endures forever. You see, God will combine music with his songs of praise to express and stir up his, his joy in the Lord. I should say the king here, Jehoshaphat. He combined music with songs of praise to express and stir up his joy in the Lord. He'll praise God, it says, David said in, 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 in verse 9, on a ten-string harp. He'll praise God the best way he can, thinking all the time to give praises to God. 
And then listen to what Second Chronicles 20, verse 22 through 24 says. All right? Jehosh- King Jehoshaphat, he has set these singers out there. He's appointed them to sing to God, to give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. He's placed them in front of the army. Listen what happened when he did that. At the very moment they began to sing and give praise. Notice, the moment those men began to worship God, the moment they began to sing and praise God, it says the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. When they began to praise God, God began to cause confusion with their enemy. And they began fighting among themselves. And it says the armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. After they had destroyed the army of Seir, they began attacking each other. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. Think about this, that the next time you are struggling, you're in, you're, you're in some kind of battle, a spiritual battle or a battle with, with somebody that's coming against you, whatever that battle might be, instead of focusing on the battle, begin to praise God. Praise Him. Forget about yourself, forget about your problem, and think about God and begin to praise Him. And I remember one time, there used to be an old uh, song and, you know, by Dave Messenger. It was a song that it was, says, let's forget about ourselves, magnify the Lord and worship him. And I remember one day I was driving to work and I had a terrible headache. And I was just complaining to the Lord and I was just, Lord, you know, make this thing go away. And just, you know, I just, and I had it for a while and it was just, it was just bugging me. It was annoying me. And I, you know, just wanted it to go away. And the Lord brought to my mind the words of that song. Hey, forget about yourself. Magnify the Lord and worship him. And yet I began to put on some worship music and I began to just think about God and I began to sing along on those songs I was driving along. And, you know, by the time I got to work, the headache was, I didn't even, I didn't even know it was gone because I was so involved in God and not me and myself that it was gone. And I just, I just praise the Lord. I never forgot that experience. You know, forget about ourselves, magnify God, think about God, meditate upon God, praise God for who he is rather than focusing on our problems. And that's what this example shows us here. They were going to battle, but they began to put, they put worshipers out front of the army and they began to sing and praise God. And the next thing you knew, their, their enemy was wiped out. Whatever they were worried about, whatever they were about to confront, they didn't have to because God took care of it. Look at verse 10 now. David goes on to say, the one who gives salvation to the kings who delivers David, his servant, from the deadly sword. He tells us here what this song shall be. He says that he gives salvation to kings, which suggests that great kings cannot save themselves without God. Now, kings have their bodyguards, they have their big old armies, they have all the means of safety that they can think of. But even after that, 
It's God that gives them their salvation and it's God that protects them by those means which he could do if he had to do without them. God doesn't need big armies. He doesn't need a lot of, you know, big armies with with big weapons to to meet the needs of, of kings. Psalm 33, 16, it says, No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. God is our deliverer. That's why we don't have to worry about how big our enemy is. Or how powerful or how weaponized he might be. God is our deliverer. And it's his great strength that delivers us. Kings are the protectors of their people. But it's God that's their protector. They owe him so much service. And how much service they owe him then with their power who gives them all of their salvations. That good kings who are his ministers for the good of their subjects, they will be protected and saved by him. He has committed to give salvation to those kings that are his subjects, those who surrender to him. God's committed himself to them themselves and and they rule for God they rule for the people rather than they rule for themselves and take from the people look at the great things that God had done for David his servant who God delivered David many times from the from the deadly sword he delivered David many times from Saul's hatred and, and and David's own zeal of his country had often exposed him to dangers. This could refer to Jesus Christ, the son of David, which which, which really make it a new song, a New Testament song. God delivered David from the deadly sword. God took care of him and sustained, sustained him as his servant and God made him a conqueror over all the powers of darkness, all of his enemies. Isaiah 42.1, listen, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, God says, my elect one in whom my delight, in whom my soul delights. God says, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49.8, God says this, Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages God gave him salvation not just for himself but for us too raising him up to be a way of salvation verse 11 David says rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood Here David prays for God's kindness to continue so that he might be delivered from his enemies. Here, in verse 11, he repeats his prayer and request that he made in verse 7 and 8. His persecutors were misleading and they were unfaithful and they would surely deceive an honest man and they would be too much for David. So David's prayer is, Lord, you deliver me from these guys. You deliver me from my enemies because they're they're a strange kind of people. And here David prays that he might see peace and prosperity among the people. 
Lord, let us have victory so that we may live, may have, a, uh, have peace and quiet, which we will never have if our enemies have power to do us harm. David as king here expresses the sincere desire he had for the good of his people. For he was a type of Christ who totally provided for the good of his chosen. Verse 12. <clears throat> he said that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. Here we have the specific things that David prayed for and David wanted for his people. In verse 12, he wanted a hopeful offspring. In other words, he wanted hope for his children. Just like all parents do. They wanted good for their children. He prayed for, for, for a hopeful you know, uh, uh, offspring. That is, so that our daughters, he says, and our sons can have a good life. He doesn't mean just those in his own family, but he's praying for, for those of his subjects too. Those that he ruled over. He cared for the people that he ruled over. He prayed for the children of the next generation. And it really comforts and makes the parents happy to see their children having a promising future and that they're likely to do well. First of all, it's comforting to see our children, our sons and the daughters, our daughters grow up healthy, spiritually, physically, and emotionally. And likely to be fruitful for God in their time. To see them when they're young, growing, in, growing in, and increasing in everything that's good, growing wiser and growing better until they grow strong in spirit. Then in verse 13, David says that our barns may be full, supplying all kinds of produce, that our, she- our sheep may, be, may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. Next thing he was praying for was, was great abundance. He was praying, first of all, that their barns might be well stocked with the fruits and the goods of the, of the earth. He said that our barns may be full like those of one who manages a house well. And it, it, when, he's, when he's praying for this abundance, it wasn't so that he could live luxuriously. David was praying that their barns might be full because then we, then, then we can uh, live joyfully and, and, and usefully. You know, when we live luxuriously, we begin to abuse God's abundance. But we live joyfully and usefully with the abundance and that we can be thankful to God so that we can be generous to our friends and generous to the poor. Otherwise, what profit is it to have our barns full? James 5.5, 5, James says, You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Secondly, David prayed for their flocks that they might greatly increase. He said that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. Now much of the wealth of their country was made up of sheep, of their flocks. And in the increase of cattle, that was a blessing. And God was to be recognized for the increase in sheep. Verse 14. David says that our oxen may be well laden, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no outcry in our streets. Thirdly, he prayed that their oxen that were made for service would be strong, physically fit to do the service. 
None of us were made to be idle. So we should pray for good health. Not so much that we can take it easy and enjoy the pleasures of this world, but that we may be strong to work, that we may do the work of our place and of our day. And David prayed for uninterrupted peace. Wouldn't that be nice? He prayed, Lord, let there be no war. Let there be no attackers breaking in, nor deserters going out away from us. Don't let our enemies break in on us, God, where we have to fight with them. Because war, as we know, it brings so much harm, whether it's offensive or defensive. Secondly, Lord, let there be no oppression or division. No complaining in our streets. Wouldn't that be nice? He said, so that the people don't have any reason to complain, either about their government or each other. Nor let them be such complainers that they complain for no reason. It's desirable to dwell in peace and quiet. And then we close with verse 15. He said, notice, happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. There's the, there's the key. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. David in verse 15 is describing the prosperity of the nation that he wanted so much. Happy are the people who are in such a state. But you know what? When we are in such a state, it's not often and it's not for very long. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. You see, the relation of a people to God as being theirs is here spoken of. In other words, people who, people who, who, who has God as their Lord, this relation that they have is spoken of here because He's the source of all blessings. God is the source of all blessings. The Israelites, David says, the Israelites will be happy if they faithfully hold fast to the Lord as their God. Happy are people that are in such a state. Those are blessed that prosper in the world. But he quickly corrects himself. Rather, he says, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Happy are those people who have God's favor, who have God's love and grace in their life according to the purposes of the covenant that he made with them, even though they don't have a lot of the world's abundance. Paul said, I I learned how to be content with little or much. He didn't need his circumstances to be prosperous. He didn't need prosperity. He didn't need material things. He didn't need the things of the world to make him content. He said, I can be content with little or a lot. Because you see, his resources for contentment, they weren't outside. They weren't circumstances. They were all within. They were in Christ who was in Paul. He had the favor of God, the love of God, and the grace of God. Even though he didn't have a lot of abundance. And because all of this and much more, that is the material things of this world, can't make us happy. Unless the God, I'm sorry, unless the Lord is our God. 
A little or a lot? Can't make us happy unless our God is the Lord. And if the, if the Lord is our God, then if we lack all of the world's goodies, if we have nothing, that cannot make us miserable. Because God is our joy. And nobody can take that away. See, people can take my stuff. And if my joy and my happiness in life is because of the stuff that I've accumulated in my lifetime, then they can take my joy. They've stolen my joy. But if Christ is my joy, they can take all the stuff that I have. And you know what? They can't steal Christ from me. He's my joy. And the Bible calls him the everlasting joy. He's the everlasting father. And nobody can take that from us. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful psalm, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that our joy is not wrapped up in stuff. It's not wrapped up in the things of this life. But Lord, we are abiding in you and you are abiding in us. And Lord, in Christ, we have everything that we need. We have God. And Jesus said, all that the Father gives me, all that the the Father has is mine. And it belongs to us as well. He gives it to us, whatever we need. And so we do pray that the Spirit of God would speak to us and that God would be our shield. He'd be our fortress. He'd be our deliverer. He'd be our all in all. He'd be our supply. He'd be our sufficiency, our comfort, our joy, our strength, our hope. And that our expectation is in Him and no man or no material possessions. But our hope is in Christ. And Father, bless my brothers and sisters here as they make their way home, God. Protect them on the road. Get them home safely. And Father, as they begin their week tomorrow, again, may they be reminded that the moment they step out their door, they're in enemy territory. So may they be prepared to go to battle. But God, you are you are our, our, our protection. So may we put on the armor of God and may we look to you for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.